and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the first two decades of the 20th century, the most well-known traveling evangelist in the United States was a man by the name of Billy Sunday. In the fall of 1902, Billy conducted a six-week-long tent revival here in the city of Charleston. And one of his converts was a man by the name of Obadiah Dugan, who was prone to drinking and gambling and went to one of those tent revivals and was converted to believe in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Well, two years later, Obadiah Dugan founded the Star Gospel Mission, the oldest not-for-profit Christian welfare organization in the city of Charleston. Back to Billy Sunday. Sunday was known as somewhat of a forerunner of another great evangelist by the same name, Billy, Billy Graham. Sunday was also known for putting on some rather impressive homiletical theatrics, and especially his grand finales. The story is told of him that whenever he would preach in a local church, he would secretly hire a young boy who would hide himself in a remote corner of the balcony with a small cage that contained a small white dove in it. At the end of his sermon, Billy Sunday would implore the Holy Spirit to come down, which was the boy's cue to immediately release the dove. At one revival, however, when the excited preacher raised his arms and exclaimed, Come down, Holy Spirit, come down. There was no sign of the dove. So he repeated, Come down, Holy Spirit, come down. And then from the balcony, the preacher heard the anxious voice of the young boy declare, Sir, a big yellow cat just ate the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Though Christian symbolism has always depicted the Holy Spirit as the dove, in the form of a dove, you'll see it on the back of Brian's chasuble this morning, We have another picture of the Holy Spirit altogether given to us in the Scriptures. The picture we receive is a rather strange and mysterious one. However, the results are unmistakable. When the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples at Pentecost, there was no doubt as to what they were experiencing. Biblical historians tell us that it was most likely early in the morning of May 25th in the year 33 A.D., that the city of Jerusalem awoke to what would be a very surreal Pentecost. Thongs of worshipers were beginning to converge on the temple to watch the chief priests prepare not only their usual, regular sacrifices, but also the special offering for the Jewish harvest festival, which was known as Pentecost. It was most likely the high priest, Joseph Caiaphas, whom you've heard of before, who reverently lifted up two loaves of bread baked with flour from the newly harvested wheat and then solemnly waved them back and forth in front of the altar as an offering to God on behalf of the people. Elsewhere that morning, diagonally across Jerusalem, the disciples and many of those in the Christian nucleus, some 120 people altogether, had gathered for prayer in the living room of a house. Suddenly, around 9 o'clock in the morning, the whole place sounded like the foredeck of a ship in a hurricane. 
A noise like the rush of a mighty turbulent wind swept through the entire house with its whistling roar. Even more astonishing was the visual phenomenon that occurred. Flickering tongues as of fire had appeared on the the heads of the disciples, yet without singeing them. Then came the most amazing phenomenon of all. Luke tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that they too overflowed with sound. Luke writes that they all began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. They had no idea what they were even saying until the sounds that they were making began to draw a crowd of people out into the streets. People who had traveled hundreds of miles from their homes without even knowing enough Hebrew or Aramaic to get directions in Jerusalem. They'd come from all over, and yet all of a sudden, out of the blue, they heard familiar sounds. The sounds of their own native languages being spoken fluently. And when they followed those sounds to their source, to their great surprise, they discovered a band of uneducated Galileans all proclaiming their faith in God with perfect grammar in languages they'd never learned in school. Devout Jews from all over the world stood in the doorways. They they peered in the windows of that house listening to the rough-hewn band of fishermen tell about the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven. They heard them telling these things in their own language. To the disciples' utter astonishment, the Holy Spirit turned out to be an incredible linguist whom everyone could understand perfectly. Well, today marks our celebration of the Feast of Pentecost, which we've come to know as the birthday of the church. In a word, Pentecost is the fulfillment of a promise. Just before Jesus' ascension into heaven, His promise to the disciples was this. Acts 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The kind of power that Jesus was talking about was not the kind of power that the world or our culture attempts to peddle. The power of self-promotion and ambition. That is to be somebody in the eyes of the world. The power our culture pervades is not simply the drive to be effective, but it's to be better than others. The preferred power of our fast-paced, tech-savvy, postmodern age is the ideology of success and the lure and the enticement of human self-exaltation. Whether we like it or not, this is the power that moves the world today. Or so the world will like us to believe. But don't for a minute believe it. The power we celebrate this day is a different kind of power altogether. It's the power of God. It's the power that God gives us through the Holy Spirit. It's a power that He gives us to do something and to do something well. It's the power to announce 
to proclaim, to express, to tell the world about the saving love of God in Jesus Christ in both word and deed, in our words and through our actions. This is what the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost means. Jesus, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, is also the one who promised to send the Holy Spirit, and He delivered on that promise, so that His followers might continue to live a life that is perpetually proclaiming and embodying the good news of God's love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, kindness, and peace through Jesus Christ. When you take a close look at the Gospels, what you find is that there's no better proof of who Jesus was and who He said He was than the before and the after pictures of the disciples. Following Jesus' resurrection, John tells us that they were locked behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, for fear that they might suffer the same fate that Jesus did, crucifixion. Of course, as you know, many of them did anyway. Many of them were martyred. Just prior to his death on the cross, Jesus had breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But not much seemed to be happening which might prompt someone to ask, well, did the Holy Spirit actually take a hold of them? Did He hit, take a hold of their lives or not? And yet, after Jesus' ascension, Luke tells us that their lives did begin to change somewhat. They were worshiping in the temple every day. Jesus had told them to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in that one place. No, not in the temple, but in an ordinary house, in an ordinary room. And it was there that they got a crash course on power. The power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian church, which was born when a dozen rather ordinary men from Galilee received power from on high and were emboldened to tell the mighty works of God in such a way that they proceeded to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And here's the proof. According to Acts, the book of Acts that is, some 3,000 people were baptized that very day. And the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem to Athens, to Rome, to Alexandria. And to this day, it is spread across entire nations and across entire continents. Because of what happened in that room that day, people from all around the world have come to believe in a Savior, a Redeemer, and a Lord who is worshipped in every tongue and in every language under the sun. So what was it that moved Jesus' disciples off the dime? What was it that so transformed them from being a group of timid, bashful, fearful, reclusive, and unenthusiastic men to becoming a confident, emboldened, courageous, passionate, and 
energized witness to the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. What was it? I'll tell you what it was. It was power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples could do absolutely nothing. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. You can hear that truth revealed in such familiar statements as these. From AA, the very first of the 12 steps, it says, we admitted that we were powerless. Or from the colic for the third Sunday in Lent, we have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. Or from St. Paul's second letter to Corinthians where Paul speaks about the painful thorn in the flesh he had. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That word power, by the way, comes from a rather fascinating Greek word. The word is dynamis. You hear Jeff talk about it quite often in his classes. Transliterated, it really means dynamite. You can hear it in the Greek, dynamis, dynamite. Well, what little, know, what little I know about dynamite comes from my uncle Gerhardt, who was a dairy farmer in Theresa, Wisconsin. As a boy, I spent several weeks every summer with my cousins on the Christian family farms, which my great-grandfather, Friedrich Wilhelm Christian, now you know where I get the middle name, at least of his, for my name, began in the mid-19th century. One day, we all got into Uncle Gerhardt's pickup truck and went out into the field where right in the middle of the field was this huge, enormous boulder that needed to be removed. There we met a man that my uncle had hired who was quite proficient in the use of dynamite. And what he was going to do was blast that boulder to smithereens. I'll always remember him telling us boys that dynamite could only do the trick if one applied it to the weakest, most vulnerable point in the rock. And in this case, it was a hairline fracture that transversed through the entire boulder. He said that dynamite has the ability to, to move or dislodge that which is resistant to being moved. Are you beginning to see where this is going? Somebody asked me after the early service, by the way, what happened to the rock, the boulder? I said, well, it did break all apart, but it took three tries with the dynamite. Deep down, the disciples knew that left to their own resources, left to their own skills and abilities, they would fail miserably. It was only by the power of the Holy Spirit entering into them that they could do any evangelizing, any healing, any proclaiming of the good news, and any influencing of anyone's life. They'd been waiting waiting a long time, steeped in their fears, weaknesses, and vulnerability, ready to receive this otherworldly power, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit, a power which would be able to dislodge them and move them out from the security of that house, dynamiting them, projecting them, as it were, empowering them to go out into the streets, out into the community, and out into the world in concentric circles, beginning in Jerusalem, their hometown, and then on to Judea, which was the state they lived in, and then Samaria, the neighboring state, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. 
The Holy Spirit has the power to do the exact same thing with each one of us. To propel us out onto Church Street, onto Meeting Street, and King Street, and the other streets in Charleston, across the Ravenel Bridge, across the Cooper River, and then throughout South Carolina, and our neighboring states, Georgia, North Carolina, even Florida and Tennessee, and perhaps even New Jersey. Although it, seems, although it seems that we don't have to do much, they're all coming to us. And then the United States. And then finally, when we're good and ready, beyond that, out into the world. Every day, every day, all of us are presented with an opportunity to speak or to live out the gospel in our lives, wherever we may be beginning with our own families, with the people we work with, with our neighbors. When you go to the grocery store or the gym or you're on the golf course or you're on the beach, there's always an opportunity. Bishop Leslie Newbegin, former missionary and bishop of South India, once told of his amazement at how many people were drawn to Christ, converted, and then baptized with no visible connection to his activities whatsoever. He tells about one of his visits to a parish in Madras, India, where he performed over 40 baptisms in one afternoon. Intrigued by so many adults being baptized, Newbegin had all of them give a very brief account of how it was that they were brought to Christ. Each story was different, and yet each story possessed many of the same similarities. Here's what he wrote. One was visited by a Christian during a lengthy illness. Another came to faith through someone who read the Bible to them. Another by a quiet act of kindness during a time of need. Another by someone who prepared a meal for them. Others came through healings. Another through a prayer that someone had prayed with them. Another through a vision or a dream. And yet another through a Bible class taught by a layperson. Newbegin's point was that the conversion of these people and their coming to be baptized could not be explained in purely human terms. The one common denominator, however, was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit working within the community of faith, spilling over from the life of the congregation from the lives of the people of God and flowing out into the day-to-day -day world and life of the community. Do you get the picture? It's that singular influence which still draws people to Christ today. Through the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit, the church is given a magnificent gift. The gift of possessing a missionary zeal, a contagious enthusiasm to go into all the world and to make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And allowing, to be allowing ourselves to be open, simply to be open for the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Are you open to that? 
Are you open to the Holy Spirit working in and through you? Or perhaps I should say, are you up for that? (laughs) Are you ready and willing to take up that mission, that calling? Are you prepared to receive the Holy Spirit's power in your life today? It can happen. If so, then I must warn you, it's dynamite. Remember, it has the power to move a person, to dislodge a person from complacency, apprehension, and timidity to boldness of speech and life-transforming action. If you're ready to receive that power, then pray this simple prayer with me today. Pray it in your hearts. Let's bow our heads. Come, Holy Spirit, come. And empower me to be a bold witness to Jesus Christ and His love for the world in both word and action. Amen.